easier that you could go through with one of your children, um, just use it that way, or with somebody that you're meeting with, discipling, or spending time talking to, maybe that you wouldn't go through it with them, but just on your own, it's your own resource to look through, what does God's word say about this? So I wanted to just share with you guys some of the things that, I went through some of the topics um, the last um, week, and just share with you some of the things, here's some fruit that you guys can reap from this. Um, the first section, under Hearts for God, there's a lot of passages that he listed, and he included in there um, examples of people. So like David's mentioned, and even Asa is mentioned as having a heart for God. So he gives examples of people. He also gives, um, there's verses that talk about the result. If you have a heart for God, this is what will happen. So like in Deuteronomy, um, it says, if you, you will find God if you search for him with all your heart and soul. So a heart that's searching for God is going to find him. Um, there's um, descriptions of what a heart for God should look like. So one of those is in Deuteronomy as well, where it says the words of God are to be impressed on our hearts. Our inner person is supposed to be um, imprinted with God's word. And just, just to take a step back, um, when we're talking about the heart, we're talking about the part of us, our inner man, the part of us that we can't see, part of us that lives forever, that um, has feelings, that makes decisions, it's our will, and where our opinions come from, um, the part of us that thinks. So that's what we're talking about. Then um, under God tests, sees, and knows the heart, that's the third category there. In 1 Kings 8, um, it says, you alone, God, know all the hearts of the sons of men which I think is so encouraging. It's convicting, but it's also just so encouraging to know that God knows our hearts. He knows our thoughts. He knows if we can't express them as well as we would like to, um, he knows them. Then on the second page, down at the bottom left, it says, this was, I thought, very interesting, one heart pulling another heart down. That's an interesting category. So I looked up Deuteronomy 20. This is where Moses is giving instructions from God to the Israelites, and one of the just for life in general, but this is specific to going to war. And it says, in war, send those who are fearful home so that their hearts won't negatively affect other people's hearts. So whatever's going on in our hearts and in that inner part of us that we can't see that's um, fearful can actually affect other people to be fearful. And then um, there's sin's impact on the heart. There's a lot of good ones in there. It just talks about how our hearts can trouble us after we sin. And then the troubled, afflicted, and faint hearts, I thought was really encouraging to go through those, um, especially the Psalms. The Psalm writers are so good at expressing like sorrow and anguish of heart. There's things that say, my heart throbs, my heart's in anguish, um, my heart is wounded, I have sorrow in my heart all the day. Um, but they generally don't stay there. Just with the sorrow and the anguish, they go on to have hope. Um, Psalm 13 is a good example of that. That's where it says, I have sorrow in my heart all the day. And then you go down to verse 5. He says, but I have trusted in your loving kindness. Anyway, so that's a resource for you guys to use. It's not something you have to use, but I just wanted you guys to know it's there. And it was really encouraging just to go through it the last couple weeks. All right, we're going to review our purpose, our Wellspring purpose and disciplines, and then Josh will come up. So, first of all, um, you when we do this, we can go over, just flip this over on the back of your notebook. 
There's also on the outline a little section where you guys can take notes if you want, just whenever we review the disciplines and the purpose. So first of all, we have our verse, our theme verse, Proverbs 4.23, which says, above all else, guard your heart, for it is the wellspring of life. And I want to read this to you from the NASB, the New American Standard Version. I love the way, I love the way the NAS words it, but we couldn't use it for our theme verse because it doesn't have the word wellspring in it. So here's what the NAS says. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So I guess we'd have to call it springs of life ministry instead of wellspring. But what I love about that verse is just that it says with all diligence. And diligence, the definition of diligence is to be constant in effort to accomplish something, to be attentive and persistent in doing something. So we're supposed to be constant in effort to watch, watch our hearts. And to watch means to keep under attentive view or observation. So we're to be, make a constant effort to watch and be attentive over our hearts, which last week we learned that our hearts are in a mixed condition. So, um, oh, get different notes here. Um, if we're in Christ, we've been given the capacity to love Christ, to love God, to have a desire to glorify him, yet we still have hearts that are affected by sin. So we've been freed from sin's power, but not from its presence. And that's why we have to constantly be looking at our hearts and be a, being attentive to them. We need to be able to discern in our hearts, are we thinking God's thoughts after him, or are we thinking in line with the world, being um, pressed into the mold of this world, or are we being transformed? All right, our purpose. The purpose of Wellspring is to equip and encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the word of God so that they live gospel-transformed lives, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. So the purpose is to equip and to encourage. As you probably know, to encourage means to give courage to somebody. So one of the goals for Wellspring is to give you the courage to keep on in your pursuit of knowing God by seeking him in his word. Discipline one, the heart. The faithful woman of God shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. So today's lesson is a discipline one lesson. It's going to give us um, some principles for how to pursue the God of the word by reading and studying the word of God. So I wanted to read to you this um, really sweet truth from 2 Corinthians 3 about the effect of gazing at Christ in the word. Paul's writing to the Corinthians, and he's kind of contrasting their um, current position with Israel's past position, with having a veil over their heart, unable to really understand the covenant that God had given to them. And he says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. So we get to look at Christ. Where do we behold his glory? In the word, specifically in the gospel. We get to gaze at him in this precious book 
And as we are beholding his glory, we're transformed from glory to glory. So from one degree of looking like Christ to a greater degree of looking like Christ, and it just continues on until we go home and we don't have sin anymore. All right, so discipline two, the home. The faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. I wanted to just kind of think a little bit about what a heart fixed on God looks like. So think about your heart um, just through the day, just a normal day. Um, What are you thinking about? What are you saying to yourself? How are you counseling yourself? Um, What we dwell on, what we're saying to ourselves, is going to shape what we say to those around us. God's word tells us specifically some things to dwell on. Paul gives a list of characteristics of things that we should dwell on in Philippians 4.8. This is probably very familiar to you, and I'll read this. He says, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence, and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So the things that we should be dwelling on are listed right here for us. If we're dwelling, if we have a heart fixed on God, we're thinking of him, his ways, we're going to be in a better position to effectively care for those who are in our home or for whoever it is that God's put you in close daily contact with. And then discipline three, ministry. With a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So our personal relationship with God is not an end in itself. Our personal walks are part of something bigger by God's design. Um, All of us who are in Christ are part of the church, which is a group of people that have all been forgiven of their sins um, and declared righteous due to Jesus' death on their behalf. So we come together because God has instructed us to, and for a lot of other reasons, um, but ultimately so that we are a light and a testimony of his name to the world around us. Go ahead and listen to Ephesians 4, 15 and 16. This should be familiar to you now. We've heard this one taught from the first time we've met. Um, It says, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Jesus, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. So our own individual walk with the Lord is going to help the body grow as we come into contact with each other in the body of Christ. So my spending time in God's word, my own confessing and repenting of sin, turning from it, is going to help the body grow, not just my own, not just myself. And I can just think of so many times where I've been among sisters in Christ, where we're having conversations just about daily life, and I hear how um, maybe my friend is handling a situation, how she's thinking about God, how she's trusting God in something, and I come away, and I am so encouraged to trust Christ all the more. Or maybe I'm convicted of how I haven't been trusting Christ or haven't been thinking rightly about God in a certain situation. So I'm just so thankful for how God has designed the body. Um, If we are individually doing what we're supposed to be doing and we come up next to each other, there's going to be growth. What a sweet way for growth to happen that God designed. 
So, all right, so those are our disciplines, and um, Josh is coming up. He's teaching us um, a new to him lesson. Um, we've had this lesson before, and I'm really looking forward to hearing Josh teach on it. So one of the sweet blessings of Wellspring is that we get to hear from so many of our pastors, and so we're just thankful to have you guys and have you supporting us and being a part of our women's ministry. All right. Well, it is a joy and privilege to be with you, ladies. And Janet, that was a, a helpful reminder for us to prepare us, prepare our hearts to think rightly in this lesson. It, it, it's a joy whenever I get to be with you, ladies, and get to open God's word. And so being asked to teach in Wellspring is, is just a, a joy and a highlight and a, and a privilege to do. And then to get to do so around this topic, the, the principle, the discipline of honoring the Lord in our Bible reading is something that is also exciting to do and go over with you women for a couple reasons. One is uh, I know the women of this church and your devotion and desire and commitment to want to honor the Lord in everything that you do. It's so evident in the life of this church. And so then to get to discuss what God would have to say about how to pursue his honor in the care of our hearts with scripture is just really exciting. And then another reason why I was particularly excited, the theological term for the, the tools that we employ in understanding God's word is called hermeneutics. And if you know much about me or have spent time with me over the years, uh, language and academic type things is not something that comes naturally for me. Making up words and creative spellings and different things like that that actually don't mean the thing that I thought and mean other things that are embarrassing happens to me over the years repetitively. And those things kind of stick. And yet one of the most encouraging areas of my life over the last 10 years has seen God grow me in an area that I'm not naturally inclined to simply because I love him and want to grow closer to him. And it didn't happen all at once. And so hopefully me being here talking about these things with you might actually bring hope to those of you who at times feel overwhelmed about the, the practice and principle of coming before God's word and not messing it up. Uh, because I know that can be intimidating at times. And just uh, another point of consideration, I've been mentored by Scott Maxwell and Smedley Yates in this practice. That's enough to give any person a complex. <laughs> and yet God is faithful and he gives us gifts uh, according to, to his will. And our responsibility isn't to compare ourselves with others, but to simply be faithful with what he's given us. So wherever you fit on the spectrum, I love to study. I don't really like to study. I love language and nuances of how language works. I have no idea what an adverb is or anywhere in between. There is hope for you and there is blessings. There are blessings for you in God's word. And we need to seek to honor him with wherever our disposition is as we come before him worshipfully in his word. Well, as we dive into our lesson, have you ever had your world rocked as you became aware of the reality that a verse you absolutely loved didn't mean at all what you thought it did? <laughs> you, you realize you butchered your life verse and you're like, well, now what am I supposed to do with my life? This was, this was my verse. I thought God had plans for me, ones of prosperity and... <laughs> 
these things. That's for Israel? Well, what about me? Do you have plans for me? Or, or maybe you've, you've felt ill-equipped to learn to grow in this area. And, and you've struggled with that. Uh, there's times when that happens to all of us. I, I remember when I was about 17, I had some really close friends and I, would, I was over at their house one night, spending the night. And at that point, I didn't have categories for theology and systems and things, but I was raised in a, in a very um, Pentecostal, charismatic environment, Arminianism, free will, our choosing God and salvation was really championed. It was the environment that I grew up in, and it's what I believed. And my friend and I started having a conversation about 10 o'clock at night about how God's sovereignty fits into salvation. And I kept arguing with him, I'm not a puppet. And God's love is perfected in choice. And these kind of catchphrases and logic that I had learned and been taught. And he kept pointing me to scripture and he pointed me to Ephesians one. And I would say, yeah, but, and then he'd point me to Ephesians two and I'd say, yeah, but, and then he'd point me to Colossians one and Titus three and all these different passages. And I just kept arguing six hours later, it's four in the morning and I'm staring at my Bible. And he was so patient and so kind, so, so loving towards me. And I'm looking at my Bible and I go, it's right there. I, I don't know how to work out all the details, but God is clearly sovereign in salvation. He's the initiator. He does this. And, and my world was rocked and it was incredibly sweet. And then all of a sudden I had this, re, this realization, what else do I believe in God's word that's not scriptural? Well, what else? Where else have I missed it? And I started reading my Bible to try to discover. And it was years and years where I was reading my Bible every year. And I'd find things where I'd learned stories. And I was totally off. And, and things that I had seen in Superbook. Anybody know what Superbook is? Superbook or Heard from Salty, the singing psalm book. Came to find that, wow, there's some things here that that aren't, aren't quite accurate, that I need to refine myself and grow in. And, and I'm sure at times we've all discovered those things. We've learned that there's things we thought were true about the Bible. And then it might actually make us gun shy to want to study God's word. I don't want to mess this up. What do I do with that? And we can feel overwhelmed in that, in our, in our caring for our hearts with God's word or our stewarding of God's word. Or maybe, like I said, you felt ill-equipped to handle God's word. I just want to encourage you. There's hope. Um, there's a, a series by John Piper called Men of Whom the World Was Not Worthy, and he kind of gives these biographies of different guys over the years um, in history and their usefulness for the Lord and, and unpacks them in kind of a seminar form. And he has one, I think it's on Luther, where he goes on a, on a Piper rant about how we need young men, pastors, uh, elders, to learn the original languages, Hebrew and Greek. And years ago, I was listening to this, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, that is so true. We absolutely do. And that will never be me. There is no hope for me for that. We kind of did a second language in homeschool, but it, it didn't work. And, and so I thought, well, that will never be me. And then years went by, and the first year of seminary, I was... Uh, doing landscaping to help supplement our income and i'm i'm mowing uh, a lawn and i'm riding on this riding lawnmower it's 100 degrees outside and kind of bouncing up and down i've got my headphones in i'm listening just randomly through that same series and 
and that one comes on again. And just that morning, I had read from my Hebrew Bible, and Piper starts going on this rant, and I'm, I'm mowing the lawn, and I just start bawling. <laughs> I never thought it'd be me, and I read my lawn. That was probably because I was sleep-deprived more than anything else, but it was still really exciting to see God's grace. There was, there was hope. And as I said a moment ago, some are going to have a propensity for this. Um, they're going to be drawn to wanting to, to mine God's wor- word and to enjoy that process. Some of us enjoy the effects of that, but the process is overwhelming. And regardless of where we fall, we still need to be disciplined to diligently pursue the Lord in the word. If one is an introvert, it doesn't get you off the hook of all of the one another instructions and the call to be connected to the body of Christ. You actually have to fight your natural inclinations to be obedient to scripture, to fellowship in the body of Christ. And one where that comes more naturally also needs to be disciplined and self-controlled to grow and, and embrace that all the more. And so it is with our Bible readings. For some of us, there might be a natural inclination where we enjoy that process more. And for others, it might be more laborious. But we all need to be disciplined. We need to be self-controlled. We need to be faithful to come before God in his word, to grow in our understanding of him, that we might honor him, that we might be conformed into his likeness, that we might direct our hearts and ourselves to love the things that he loves and to hate the things that he hates, that we would be able to honor him in all things. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to look at seven principles for shepherding your heart, for directing your heart as to how it should think and how it should interact around God's word to honor the Lord in our Bible reading. So seven principles for shepherding your heart for directing your heart, for guiding your heart, for speaking truth to yourself so that you might conduct yourself in a way that honors the Lord in your Bible reading. That should be our goal in this, to see God honored as we care for our hearts, as we draw near to him through his word. And so the first principle for this, the first principle for caring for our hearts, shepherding our hearts, directing our hearts to honor the Lord in Bible reading is this. We need to pursue God's glory. This should be our chief end in all of life. This is what the believer is called to do. Everything in the Christian life is to be about God's glory. I'm sure you have heard 1 Corinthians 10.31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Everything in our life, everything that we embrace and pursue and and the way that we conduct ourselves is is to be for God's glory. And our, our scripture reading, our care for our hearts, our drawing near to him is, in his word isn't an exception to this. Reading your Bible is first about God's glory. And this is incredibly helpful to consider as we come before God seeking to honor him in our Bible reading. It can't be first and foremost about us getting something out of it. You will get something out of God's word. But we need to cultivate a heart's desire, a disposition that is pursuing God's glory first and foremost. That's what we desire. We don't read our Bible to be good Christians. We don't read our Bible so that we can find a golden nugget to stay with us throughout the day. We don't read our Bible so that we can boast in our diligence to our friends. 
We read our Bibles worshipfully, wanting to glorify God by drawing near to our great God in his word. First and foremost, we may discover a golden nugget that stays with us throughout the day. We will find encouragement and blessing in God's word, but the goal, the root of our heart that's driving us in the morning to get out of bed and open our Bibles and and care for our hearts, bring our hearts to God's word, is, is supremely that we want God to be glorified. We want God to be glorified. And this is so helpful because oftentimes we can try to measure the success of our time in God's word by how we feel about it afterwards. Did I get something out of God's word? Have you ever felt that? Man, I've been reading my Bible. I'm just not getting a lot out of it right now. The problem is never God's word. And it's actually presumptuous to think you didn't get anything out of it. But it's also self-focused to come to God's word with an expectation that you must feel or or be a certain way afterwards. No, no, no. We come humbly before God's word to glorify him. And anything that he would want to do for us in his word is simply his desire, his will, his plans, his purposes, and his kindness and grace to us. Turn to Philippians 1. I want you to see this in a prayer of Paul. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. Paul says, And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. So that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ. To what end? For what purpose? To the glory and praise of God. We must cultivate a desire to grow in our knowledge and grow in our discernment so that we can approve or discover or distinguish what is excellent. So that we may grow in holiness, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus. Why? To the glory and praise of God. That is the ultimate end of the Christian, and that must be the ultimate end of our Bible reading. And this changes reading your Bible from where your feelings are the dictator of the fruitfulness of your time in God's word to asking yourself the question, did I worship God this morning? Was I pleasing to him in the submitting of my will to his? We don't come to God's word to fulfill obligations of Christian practice. We we come to God's word to worship the creator of the universe, that he would be glorified. And that is an obligation for the Christian. It's a discipline. It's something we're called to do, but we don't do it simply to appease an expected standard. We do it as we cultivate a heart of love for God. Our reading of our Bible is first about God's glory. We must pursue God's glory in our Bible reading. Now, what do we do when we don't feel like wanting to glorify God in our Bible reading? If we need to pursue God's glory in our Bible reading, do we abandon our shepherding of our hearts with God's word when we don't feel like we want to glorify God? 
Well, the obvious answer, I hope, is absolutely not. Don't abandon that. That might be a temptation. I got to get my heart right before I come to God's word because I don't want to come to God's word with the wrong heart. No, his means of help giving to us the right kind of heart is a person who is fighting what they feel with what they know and pursuing obedience and honoring the Lord, even when they don't feel like it, by submitting themselves under God's word. And so in those moments where you're fighting for this, I want to glorify God, but I don't feel like it right now. I feel like staying in bed. When you're in that moment, that's when you shepherd your heart, you direct your heart, which is not trustworthy in and of itself, and how it feels and where it goes when left unchecked. You direct your heart to what is right and what is good. And you say, I don't feel like doing this, but it's not about me. I want to glorify God. And so I'm going to humble myself under his word. I'm going to be disciplined. I'm going to be faithful, self-controlled in my thoughts and in my actions. And I'm going to sit down and I'm going to read my Bible and I'm going to trust the Lord. And I'm going to pray. And ask him to help me with what I'm incapable of doing in and of myself. So we come to the Lord humbly seeking his glory. We pray and in faithful discipline. We fight what we may be feeling in those moments with what we know. And we bring our hearts to God's word so that we would grow in real knowledge and all discernment. So that we would be able to distinguish what is excellent, which is the glory of God. Now, that's the first directive in shepherding your heart to honor God in your Bible reading. We are to pursue God's glory. Next, what's the next principle for shepherding our hearts to honor the Lord in our Bible reading? It's this. We are to depend on God as our greatest aid. Depend on God, first and foremost, as your greatest aid in your Bible reading. I want to unpack this a little bit, and and I'm going to share... In regards to this point, the positive of what I mean by this and the next point that we'll get to in a moment is going to provide some clarity as to what I don't mean. And it's important to to understand these distinctions, but we'll start with the positive of what do I mean by this? Our greatest aid in our Bible reading is God himself. If you are a believer, you can have confidence today to be able to read your Bible to grow closer to God, to honor him, to glorify him, to please him, to grow in your faith, and to rest in his word. You have that today. And you must depend on God as your greatest aid to honor him in your Bible reading. And this looks like prayerfully coming to the Lord with humility and dependence upon the Lord. You cultivate a humble, dependent disposition before God as you worshipfully come before him in his word. Prior to salvation, you you could read God's word, but the natural man does not accept the things of the spirit of God. Consider 1 Corinthians 2.14. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. Yet now, if you are a believer, you have eyes to see things about God. You have humility to accept the things from God, to come before him in his word, and to have true understanding, and to welcome the truth into your life. You're no longer seeking to suppress the truth about God in unrighteousness. And so considering these things, how important is it 
as a daily practice as we seek to honor the Lord in our Bible reading to incorporate diligent, faithful prayer, which expresses humility and dependence upon him in that. To seek his help, to see what you must about him in his word, humbly and worshipfully, that you would see and accept what he has to say about the nature of sin and the danger that lies within, that you would gird yourself with the reality of the saving nature of God who provided a way of salvation and freedom from sin's bondage and penalty through his own son. And that you'd be able to observe God's heart for righteousness and the holiness of his people. And that you would fill your heart and mind to love what God loves and then to pursue those things. Prayer is a key part of dependence upon God as your greatest aid in your Bible reading. So as we shepherd our heart to honor the Lord in our Bible reading, there needs to be a humble dependence upon God as our greatest aid, which... Oftentimes is revealed through diligent, intentional prayer before him in his word. Now, the next one, the next principle that we look at is the principle of employing self-control in your reading practices. And this is where I want to unpack what I don't mean by God being your greatest aid in your Bible reading. While God is your greatest aid, we must also exhibit self-control. Scripture is God-breathed. The Spirit inspired the Bible, yet he does not short-circuit the Scripture by whispering in our ear what they mean. When we pray for his help, we do not pray that he will spare us the hard work of rigorous reading, study, and meditation. What we pray is that he would make us diligent to work hard and humble enough to welcome the truth. The work of the Spirit in helping us grasp the meaning of Scripture is not to make study unnecessary, but rather to make us unconditionally open to receive and submit to what our study reveals. Instead of twisting the text to justify our unwillingness to accept it. So when we talk about God being our greatest aid, what we're not talking about is some uh, mystical experience where God gives us special insight into scripture void of diligent, faithful, humble study. The work of the spirit in helping us grasp the meaning of scripture is not to make study unnecessary, but rather to make us unconditionally open to receive and submit to what our study reveals instead of twisting the text to justify our unwillingness to accept it. And this takes self-control and work. And this self-control in our Bible reading, I I broke down into three categories for us to consider. The first is hold fast to the normal use of words and language. As we employ self-control in our reading practices, as we seek to be diligent in our reading practices, that the Spirit would work inside of us, helping humble us, helping us submit ourselves to what Scripture says, and helping us to be self-controlled, the Spirit working in us, giving us discipline and self-controlled with our mind and with our thoughts, to, to understand what God says, we need to hold fast to the normal use of words 
and language. We need to expect a single clear meaning in God's word. This is how language works. Communication is a gift from God to clearly communicate one meaning at a time, sentence by sentence or idea by idea. We communicate in order to be understood in these ways. And so it is with God's communication in scripture. Consider Isaiah 45 verses 18 and 19. Isaiah 45 verses 18 and 19 say, I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. And here the Lord expected the offspring of Jacob to understand him because his meaning in his words were not secret. They weren't unfindable. There wasn't some some hidden code to unlock the secrets of God's word. God communicated to be understood. And this doesn't mean that God has spoken regarding everything. Secret things still belong to God, Deuteronomy 29, 29. But what he has spoken, he has done so to be understood. This also doesn't mean everything is easy to understand or doesn't require work or effort. Peter tells his readers that Paul's words were difficult to understand at times. But we do expect to discover one coherent message from one passage to another. And this takes patience and self-control and discipline. And as we hold fast to the normal use of words and language, we let words mean what they mean. We don't spiritualize things. Scott Maxwell has said it this way. If a husband comes home from work and finds a note on the counter, letting him know the hallway light is out, He doesn't conclude from that spiritual darkness is welling up in the house. He reads the note normally and hopefully puts a new bulb in the hallway sooner than within the next month. That's super convicting because we have like three light bulbs out in our hallway light. I'm like, oh, got to get to that. Ask me tomorrow if I've replaced the light bulbs. The spiritual accountability. We're to read our Bibles this way. And this practice is known as the literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. This is what we employ at Grace Bible Church. This is what we believe is right and honoring to the Lord to to allow language to work as language works. And to not do something different with language in the Bible than we would with everything else. No, no. God designed things this way. He designed language this way. And we are to to labor to understand what he has said accurately. And so we're taking into account the actual literal meaning of the words with the grammatical way that language works, laboring to understand the history or the context of where this passage sits and to whom the audience was and what the intention of it was was revealed through what is actually written. And in this, you may come across metaphors. That's a normal practice in language. That's not a a supernatural spiritualization to simply use metaphors. We do this all the time. This is normal to language, and it's clear when it is being used. And so when Jesus said, I am the door in John 10, we don't conclude Jesus is made of wood and swings on a hinge. That's not what we're talking about at all. No, the imagery is... In his metaphors that Jesus is the entrance or gateway into eternal life. And he actually explains that. 
And it's good to, even when looking at metaphors, to begin thinking through, why is that metaphor being used? What is a door? What is its purpose? How does it function? What was Jesus trying to communicate? What was he communicating by suggesting his metaphoric resemblance to a door? And again, different categories of writing don't threaten this. We know that historical books are written in a, in a different style, in a certain way, in, in a specific way or context. And poetic literature is written in a specific way. And that doesn't change the fact that we seek to understand the meaning of the words and how they relate to one another and what the communication is. And so it is with prophetic scripture or epistles. Just because God told Israel to do something at some point in time doesn't mean now we all have to do the same thing. And so we have to take careful consideration as we study God's word to not just parachute ourselves into a passage and have it all have to do with us, but rather to be self-controlled and disciplined to mind God's word for what he said and what he meant and then how to bear that on our lives. What are the implications of that on our lives as we understand the actual meaning of the text? Next, as we employ self-control, we hold fast the normal use of words, but we also actively equip ourselves to understand God's word. We hold fast to the normal use of words, and we also actively equip ourselves or actively equip yourself to understand God's word. Recognize this is a process. You can't equip yourself all at once. This takes time. Work to grow in your understanding of language. Be patient with that process. Work to understand the context of passages and books. Read your Bible. Reread passages over and over again. And listen, if the entirety of your heart shepherding is, is listening to the Bible in your car or listening to Scripture as you're doing various chores and activities, you're actually shortchanging yourself from the intentional study that's required to properly handle and understand God's word. Those things aren't wrong or sinful. Don't, don't not listen to God's word in the car. But, but don't deceive yourself to think that listening to God's word in, the, in your car is all that you need. Be diligent in this. Be disciplined in this. Actively work to understand God's word. And you just can't do that while you're doing three other things. Many of you women do five things at once really, really, really well. I can't do that. And when it comes to God's word, we shouldn't have divided attention all the time. If you have no idea when Ezekiel was written or to whom he was speaking, whom it was concerning, you'll have a lot of difficulty. But simply knowing it was written around 570 to 592 BC to Jews captive in Babylon. Uh, concerning the, the condemnation upon Judah's faithless leaders and godless foes and the consolation regarding Israel's future, you'll find a world of difference in understanding what's going on in the book of Ezekiel. But this takes work. This isn't something that just happens. It shouldn't be a passive practice that hopefully someday I'll just somehow understand what Ezekiel is talking about. No, you need to actively equip yourself. Work hard. And you know what? The fact that you're here this morning is evidence that you're already doing this type of thing in your life. You're seeking to actively equip yourself to worshipfully honor the Lord in your life. 
Praise God for that. And that's one of the things I love so much, much about this church. I, I've grown up in this church. I was here when we were planted. Uh, I think I was 18 or 19 when the church was planted. My wife and I grew up in this church, and, and I'm so grateful for the intentional efforts of the elders to equip saints, men and women. What a blessing. And then lastly, under the necessity of self-control in your Bible reading, we must understand the relationship between interpretation and application. Understand the relationship between interpretation and application. There's an important relationship between interpretation of a text and the application or the implications of that text on the reader's life. Right. Application, uh, another word for for how we express kind of what we do with God's word could be the implications, because we may not always have something that we go do outwardly. um, But there might be implications of a text on how we think about the Lord. Uh, So either one of those words work uh, application or implications. And there's a distinction between that and our interpretation. We need to understand this relationship. This is really important when we want to honor the Lord in our Bible reading, when we want to be diligent with God's word, that we have self-control in the practice of studying God's word to, to, to understand this distinction as we unpack God's word and its, and its role in our life. While there is a relationship, it's important to understand there's also a distinction in or between Interpretation and application. Interpretation and application complement each other, but they can't replace one another. They can't replace one another. An application or the implications of a text are best built on accurate interpretation of a text. Interpretation is this. Interpretation is understanding the truth in the passage within the intention of the author. Understanding the truth in the passage within the intention of the author. Interpretation finds the meaning the author intended in his historical situation. Interpretation, understanding the truth in the passage within the intention of the author. The application is the various ways that one may need to live or think in light of the meaning of the passage. Interpretation is understanding the truth in the passage within the intention of the author, and application is the various ways that one may need to live or think in light of that meaning in the passage. Thus, simply understanding rightly an interpretation of a passage should not satisfy us. We should labor to understand how that interpretation intersects with our life. And likewise, rushing to application without the diligent work of interpretation is a dangerous practice. If a wife reads Philippians 2 verse 3 that says, Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves, and concludes that the meaning... The meaning of this text is she must regard her husband as more important to herself. She has conflated how she believes her life must change with what Paul actually means. 
Paul writing the believers in Philippi is helping them understand in the midst of persecution, Christ-like sacrificial consideration of each other over themselves. Yet if the passage means that the wife is to love her husband or consider her husband better, what does the passage mean for her husband? Well, there's one coherent meaning. And so she's conflated these things. Rather, in self-control, she needs to conclude what the passage means, that Paul is writing to believers in Philippi, helping them understand in the midst of persecution and struggle and trials, Christ-like sacrificial consideration of each other over themselves is what we're directed to embrace, what they're directed to embrace. And then from that meaning, from that interpretation, now you have a platform to step into how does this principle now intersect with my life. Oh, I need to consider others' needs above my own. And the first place where that should manifest itself in my life is in my interactions with my husband. And that's the application or the implications of that meaning on your life. Don't rush that process of carefully considering what the meaning of the text is within its context, within its setting, and then prayerfully considering how that meaning meaning now must intersect with your life in application. And this is actually so helpful in guarding us from misusing Scripture but also from limiting scripture. If you conclude that the meaning is I need to consider my husband more than myself, you miss a world of other avenues where God's word and the meaning of that text needs to be applied in your life as well. And you find that one of the applications or one of the implications is how one interacts with their husband. But there's also a number of other implications of that text on how we interact with one another and those in the body of Christ. So we need to labor in self-control and discipline to understand the relationship between interpretation and application. This takes patience. This takes self-control. And again, this takes thoughtful meditation and and study. We can't shortchange ourselves. We need to employ self-control in our reading practices. And this brings honor to the Lord that we would do this. Next, number four. The next principle for shepherding our heart to honor the Lord in our Bible reading is this. We need to cultivate a heart that longs to be purified by God as we come before his word. This is, this is similar to what we saw in Philippians 1, right? We want to glorify God, but one of the ways that he gets glory is when we discern what is right and wrong so that we can actually walk in holiness. We need to long to be purified by God. And what we're going to do is we're just going to walk through Psalm 119 here together quickly. You can turn there in your Bibles. Psalm 119. We're just going to walk through this step by step and make observations about how the psalmist pursued purity through God's word and and have some concluding statements then of as we follow his example, what kind of disposition we should have before the Lord and his word, what kind of pursuits we should have as we seek to be purified by God through his word. We need to long to be purified by 
God, this honors God. We come to God's word because we want to be holy as he is holy. We want to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. We want to glorify God in our lives. So we want his word to have a purifying effect on our lives. Now, we'll look at verses 9 through 16. So Psalm 119, starting in verse 9, reads this. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. And then he spells out what this looks like for him. With all my heart, I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Verse 12. Blessed are you, O Yahweh. Teach me your statutes. With my lips, I have told of all your all the ordinances of your mouth. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Verse 15, I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. I shall delight in your statutes. I shall not forget your word. Now, as we consider some observations, we see seven directives of how we come to God's word so that it would have its purifying effect on our lives. The first is, we need to seek God with all your heart. Observe how the psalmist seeks God with all of his heart. Look at verse 10. With all my heart I have sought you. Do not let me wander from your commandments. With all my heart I have sought you. You see, the word of God is not the end. The word of God is a means to an end. You seek God's word because you seek God. We come to the word of God to get the God of the word. If we're to keep God's word as verse 9 instructs or calls, there, there must be a personal seeking of God himself in his word. We must seek to love God, seek to worship him, seek to glorify him in our lives. And if you do what the Bible says, but have no love for God, all you have done is transferred your sin into legalism. Some sort of idolatry of self-help or, or self-righteousness trying to attain rightness before God. No, we need to seek God. We need to have a love for God, a desire for him that we cultivate to draw near to him. You must plead with God to, to keep you near his commandments and his word because you want to be near to God. And this is really helpful in simply how we think about the commandments of God in Scripture. The psalmist here is thinking in regards to the, to the law and his nearness to God through those commandments. And he understands the correlation that the commandments of God are not um, uh, abrasive to him. They're not confining to him. They're not restrictive to him in a, in a bondage sort of way. They're actually the commandments of the Lord are opportunities for nearness to him. And it makes me think of, of 1 John 5, where we see that the commandments of the Lord are not burdensome. And even as we consider the New Testament commandments for the, the, the church-age Christian believer, we actually draw near to God as we embrace his commandments. They're not burdensome. They reveal to us God himself as we are near to his commandments. We must plead with God to keep us near to his commandments. And it must be done, look at verse 10, with all of our hearts. With all my heart I have sought you. What a great example for us. Not a half-hearted, 
pursuit of Lord, but with all his heart, he's coming to God in his instruction. And the psalmist knows something about himself. After he pledges to seek the Lord with all his heart, he understands there is a, a proneness to wandering within himself. Right? We've seen this in Come Thou Thou, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord. Seal it for thy courts above. We need God's assistance in this. And so he asks God for help. Don't let me wander from your commandments. This is a necessity for prayer for each of us in our coming to God in his word that we would seek God with all our heart and we would do so dependently. We must, too, pray. Do not let me wander from your commandments. And next... What else do we see here? We see the call or the example that leads us to conclude that we must treasure God's instruction in our heart. Treasure God's instruction in your heart. As we seek for God to have its purifying effect in us, that we long to be purified by God himself as we honor him in our Bible reading, we must discipline ourselves and shepherd our hearts, direct our hearts to treasure God's instruction. Treasure God's instruction. Look at verse 11. Your word I have treasured in my heart, that I may not sin against you. Hold it in the depths of your heart. A, a deep valuation of the word causes the heart to keep the word. We must treasure the word so that, that none of its riches might slip through our fingers. Treasure the word so that you do not treat God's word carelessly. That you might steward it well, that you wouldn't forget it. This is how God's word must be in our hearts as a treasure carefully watched over and guarded. This is how God's word must be in our lives if we're to keep our ways pure. That we're not chafing against God's word. That we're not pushing it away from us. That we're not wanting to be distant from it because we know what he's going to want of us. And there's things in our lives that we just don't want to, we don't want to relinquish to him. We don't want to let go of these, these idols or these things that we, that we love. No, no, we need to treasure. We need to love God's word. Regardless of, of, of how we feel, regardless of what it might threaten in our lives, no, we, we humbly submit ourselves to the Lord that we might be purified by God's word as we appropriately treasure God's instruction in our heart. Next, we see the example of the psalmist longing for instruction from God. And as we desire to keep our ways pure before him and to honor God in our Bible reading in this, we must too long for instruction from God. We treasure his instruction and we long for more of it. There should be an insatiable craving for God's direction in our lives. That we would never be content to, to lean on our own understanding, to depend on our own wisdom, but that we're continually wanting to understand God's word and what he has revealed in regards to himself and his instruction and his guidance and his input for our lives. This is a great aid in being purified by God himself, that we wouldn't cut ourselves off from God's instruction, but that we would long for it. Verse 12 begins with praising the Lord, saying, Blessed are you, O Lord. And then the psalmist, as he's breaking out into praise, he, he's immediately applying the previous point of treasuring God's word as he's praising him. And in, do so in, in so doing, he humbles himself, he submits himself, and he says, Teach me your statutes. He longs for God's instruction. He submits himself under God. The psalmist does not view himself as over the word of God. 
He knows the value of God's word. He treasures God's word. And now he is eager to be taught by God's word. He recognizes that God's word sits above him. And that is good. The psalmist writes 176 verses on the word of God. And he continually asks God to teach him God's word. And it doesn't matter how much you think you know about God's word. Continue to submit yourself to God and to plead for him more. I want more. More of you. Next, the next observation that we see from the psalmist who is desiring to be purified by God's word is we see him proclaim God's instruction to others. What a great example to follow. To proclaim God's instruction to others. God's word is best kept when it is kept by someone who is proclaiming it. Verse 13, with my lips I have told of all the ordinances of your mouth. Everyone who proclaims Christ as his or her Lord is called to proclaim the word of God. Not necessarily in a teaching setting, but in a proclamation of God's goodness and his ordinances. A sharing with one another, an encouragement of one another of who God is and what he's done, a call to disciple others. It, it may look and manifest itself differently, this call to proclaim God's word to others, but none of us are off the hook in verbalizing the goodness of God. And there's actually an accountability that comes from this. There's a realization when we speak to others in a processing that is beneficial for us. And in fact, it's, it's the natural inclination of one who is being affected by God's word. That we would proclaim it. God's word is best kept when it's kept by someone who is proclaiming it. To tell others of the truths of the word of God. And really this should start with those closest to us. With those in our home. And then it should work its way out in our lives. The more you tell others of God's word, the more you'll keep God's word. Because it, it will be etched into your own conscience. There's a sweetness that's a, that's a good thing for us as we do this. Next, letter E, rejoice in God's instruction. Rejoice in God's instruction. We seek God with all of our hearts. We treasure God's instruction in our heart. We long for instruction from God. We, we should proclaim God's instruction to others. We should then rejoice in God's instruction. Look at the example that we see in the psalmist of this. Verse 14, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. If we're to keep our way pure, we are to rejoice in the word of God. Rejoice in the word of God as much as all riches. I want you just to think for a moment. If, if you never had to think about a financial obligation again, and you never had to consider the implications on your resources for anything that you wanted to purchase. How do you think you would respond to all of a sudden being thrust into that kind of situation? How would you respond? I don't think we would have all the joy and peace that we think we would get from that. But oh my goodness, I, I, think, we would, I think we would rejoice in that. I think we'd want to find comfort in that oh man that's a huge burden it's been lifted well listen the psalmist has just said god's instruction is better than all of the riches 
And now he's rejoicing in God's commandment as much as if he had all riches. And what he's doing is showing how much he actually treasures God's word, how precious God's word is to him. He rejoices in God's instruction. He embraces God's instruction. If somebody came and said, hey, I have an infinite amount of resources. Would you like that? (laughs) Oh, yes, yes, right now, right now. Well, what's your disposition as you consider your Bible on your shelf? Do you accept God's word with the same kind of enthusiasm? Do you rejoice in God's instruction in in your life as if someone were handing to you all the riches of the world? Because the reality is, is God's word is more valuable, more precious. All the riches of the world will pass away, but God's word endures forever. And what, what the riches of this world bring you are temporary and fleeting and vain. And what God's word brings to your life is eternal and lasting, priceless. Rejoice in God's instruction. And again, if you don't find joy in God's word, don't try to find joy in God's word in something other than God's word before you come to it. Bring your heart, fight what you feel with what you know in those moments, submit yourself to God worshipfully and humbly, confess I don't really want to hear what you have to say right now, but I'm going to do it because you're God and I'm not. And I love you and I want to humble myself before you and give to me what I don't possess right now, which is a greater affection for your instruction in my life. Because while I don't feel it right now, I know it's good and I know it's the best thing for me and I know it's better than all the riches of the world. That is shepherding your heart. And that's what each of us must do. Next, we see the psalmist meditate on God's instruction. An incredible aid to being purified by God's word is a discipline of meditating on God's instruction. To keep the word of God, we must meditate on it. Look at verse 15. I will meditate on your precepts and regard your ways. What is it to meditate on God's word? It's to recall the word of God to your memory, to think on it, to roll it over and over again in your mind. It should dominate our life. It should dominate our thoughts. Have you ever laid down to go to sleep and you had some sort of event that happened that day and it just kept replaying in your mind? You're like, oh, just stop, stop. And so you try to sing a song or something and you just can't get it from rolling over and over in your mind. That's what we should train ourselves to do with God's word. We shouldn't, this is taking your thoughts captive. We shouldn't let ourselves be subject to an uncontrolled mind that's just racing, and that's hard. And we, I'd be happy to talk about strategies for how to do that. I understand that's a difficult thing to do. But what we should seek to train ourselves to do is to have that kind of disposition towards God's word. A discipline with our minds where we, just, we are just rolling God's word in our hearts and our minds and thinking. The word for meditation, this is a, this is a great picture. I'm sure you guys are going to just love the picture that this portrays but the word in the ancient world was the word that represented a cow that would be chewing grass and and this cow would chew it until it became cud and the cud would sit in the cow's mouth where the cow would chew it over and over again trying to pull out every drop of juice out of that grass savoring it throughout the day that 
is the imagery for meditation. And we're called to do this on God's word. Meditate. And then lastly, what do we see here as the psalmist longs to be purified by God's word? We see him joyfully retain God's instruction. He meditates on it, and then he joyfully retains God's instruction. This is a great example for us to follow. Look at verse 16. I shall delight in your statutes. There's a a joyfulness there. He's delighting in the statutes. And then I shall not forget your word. A joyful retaining of God's instruction. God's word cannot come and go in your life. It must be written on the tablet of your hearts. You must absorb its truth, absorb its riches. This might be memorization of, or retention. This might be writing down what you learned about God that morning in your card and on a note card and pulling it out through the day or putting it on notes in your phone or different things like that. But a self-controlled discipline of seeking to joyfully retain, delighting in and, and remembering of God's word. Have you ever sat, sat down to read something and you read it? And you're like, oh, good, I did my reading. What did I just read? What book was I in? What day is it? Where am I? I think I'm the, I think I'm the king of, I, I, I think I could, there were times I'd read 15 pages and go, oh, I have no idea what I just read. Got to start over. We can't allow ourselves just to go through the motions of putting our eyes on letters on a page. We need to discipline ourselves to, to understand and then to joyfully retain God's instruction. We must long for God's purifying effect of his word to be present in our life. This honors the Lord as we come before him in his word. Now, next How do we honor the Lord in our Bible reading? And these last three, we're going to kind of work through a a little bit quickly here, but there's some principles in them we can't miss. We need to humbly entrust yourself. We need to humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom. Humbly entrust yourself to God's wisdom. What pleases the Lord in the shepherding of our hearts with God's word? A humble entrusting of ourselves to God's wisdom. We must joyfully submit ourselves to God's wisdom. God gets to decide what is right and wrong. God gets to decide what is good and what is bad. And so we entrust ourselves to him, to his wisdom revealed in scripture by submitting ourselves to God's word. Our emotions are not to rule over our Bible reading. Rather, our Bible reading is to guide our emotions. The statements like, I just couldn't believe God would want this for me. When we're in a trial and he tells us to consider it joy. Or I couldn't believe in a God who would dot, 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 fill in the blank. I know you say God's in control and that he has purposes in this, that he's working all things according to his will. But no, 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 not this area. No, we need to humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom as revealed in his word. We cannot bring a predetermined expectation of what God must say to the various situations that we find ourselves in in life. And listen, this is, this is a crucial safeguard and practice in our Christian walk. And this is probably one of the most difficult practices to embrace, especially especially where there has been deep hurt or betrayal, difficulty, hardship, pain, trials. 
it is incredibly difficult to humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom when we can't make sense of it. But God's wisdom is infinitely better than man's wisdom. And any conclusion that we would come to in our own logic, in our own philosophical working out of truth and reality and purpose and intention and eternity and all of those things, any any conclusion that we would come to independent of God pales, is nothing, is nothing compared to God's wisdom. The foolishness of God is greater than the greatest wisdom of man, as if there's anything foolish about God. But the idea there is that the, the least of God is infinitely better than the best of what we could conclude and come to in our own reasoning. Our wisdom would never, 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 never lead to a crucified Son of God as the means of eternal salvation and reconciliation. And yet in God's wisdom that took place through the most atrocious, sinful act of all humanity, the crucifixion of God's Son, the only blameless one, he brought about salvation for all who would believe. His wisdom is trustworthy. His his wisdom is trustworthy. We need to humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom, even when it's hard, even when it's painful, even when we can't work it out in our minds, we trust the Lord. We can trust him with our salvation through means we would never come up with. We can trust us in the various circumstances that we find ourselves in life. And what a blessing that we don't have to do this alone. There's a desire of God to be near to you in those circumstances. And there's an intention of God for you to be near to the church in your hurt, in your trials, in your struggles, in the areas where you are just wrestling to reconcile things. And sometimes we just don't get the benefit of reconciling those things. We just have to humbly entrust ourselves. God is God. We are not. And so we humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom and his word. This honors God. This is appropriate. This is good. Next, we trustingly resign ourselves to the sufficiency of God's word. And these are really related. Number five and number six are are very closely related. We humbly entrust ourselves to God's wisdom, and then we trustingly resign ourselves to the sufficiency of God's word. Right? Second Timothy 3.16. All scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped, ready for every good deed. 2 Peter 1.3, he's giving us, given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. We can have confidence in the sufficiency of Scripture to equip us and to give us what we need to honor God in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in in this life. To please him, we have what we need to please him. We don't need to go pursue worldly strategies for repenting of sin or, or attaining peace or finding joy or navigating trials. We can turn to God's word with confidence and we can trustingly resign ourselves to the sufficiency of God's word. And this pleases the Lord when we do this. This honors him when we do this. And then lastly, who likes to guess the blanks? All right. Who likes to guess the blanks when we have them? This is a trick one. 
Okay, so I'm not going to put it on the board, but it, I recognize it's a trick one. Uh, it's a bait and switch. Let's see what you guys think. What do you think? What do you think you would think the last one is? So don't try to overthink it. What do you think it would? Okay, obedient, um, obediently embrace God's care for you through the psych. So the, that's that's a true statement. We should obediently embrace God's care for you through the word. Okay, but that's not what we're ending with. You ready? Boom! <laughs> Obedient. <laughs> Obediently embrace God's care for you through the church. God has a specific design for his people to be connected with other people who love the Lord. And as you seek to honor God in your Bible reading, don't live on an island. Embrace God's care for you. Obediently embrace God's care. We are called to be connected and fitted with one another. Ephesians 4, right? Janet mentioned it earlier. Hebrews, don't forsake the assembly of the brethren. All the multitude of the one another's. Even Philippians 2, what I, what I mentioned earlier. If there's any consolation of joy and all these different things, make my joy complete. Being of the same mind. There's to be a unity among God's people in our thinking and a closeness to one another. And there's care for you in this. God's design is for his people to be in a local assembly of believers in the church. That there would be pastors and elders who guard the flock and watch over the doctrine of the church and equip saints for the work of ministry. There's the safety of this in this for each one of us to be part of the body of Christ. And if you find yourself embracing theology that no one around you believes, understanding of God's word that nobody around you believes, you probably need to slow down and make sure that you're listening to others more than you're listening to yourself in that moment. We need to obediently embrace God's care for you through the church. All of these principles for honoring the Lord in your Bible reading, you don't need to go take them and then escape to an island and now i guess i've just got to do all these things and it's really hard no stay near to the church and once again i'm preaching to the choir you're here you're doing this right now you're obediently embracing god's care for you through the church by being here now participation in small groups participation on sundays equipping our body life informal gatherings phone calls texts emails coffee dates, all of these different things are opportunities for us to embrace obediently God's care for us through the church. And then how can we utilize that well? Well, by being intentional in those moments where we're interacting, share what God's teaching you in his word. Ask others what God's teaching them from his word. If you're working through a passage, it should be normal, not weird to say, hey, I've been reading this and I'm, I'm struggling to understand what it means. What do you what, can you help me? What does it mean? What, what do you think this means? Can we, or I have no idea what the book of Hosea is about. Do you have any resources on how I can understand the context of what's going on here? It seems really weird. Obediently embrace God's care for you through the church and praise God. You, you're doing that. What a, what a sweetness and kindness of the Lord an opportunity for us to humble ourselves under him as we obediently care for one another around these things. God is so kind and so good to give us his word. Each one of us should 
desire and resolve ourselves to want to honor him as we draw near to our great God worshipfully in the care of our hearts. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this time this morning to consider these things. And first and foremost, we just want to give praise and thanks to you that we, that we have your word. It is greater than all riches and all treasure. And I know so often I don't think as such, and I need to. I pray that that would be true for all of us, that we would recognize the infinite value of your word, because in your word we find you. I pray that that would endear us to the discipline of caring for our hearts and that we would pursue that discipline with a passion and desire to see you honored and glorified in our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.